0: Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient, advocate, and host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And that other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Happy
0: Thanksgiving, Black Friday, late November day for those listening in real time. On today's show, community member, retired clinician, and downright, Boss yes. Connie Montgomery and community member social worker and regular contributor Alex Abreu joined for a discussion around diversity, equity, and inclusivity in the bleeding disorders community. A great and important topic, and two fantastic contributors to speak on that. Then Josh Bragg is back with the latest Let's Talk mental health segment featuring clinical psychologist Emily Wheat. The topic this time growing up different mm. and what it means to realize what that means as an adult. Josh will then join Amy and me in studio for a quick capsule to that segment before wrapping up today's show. This
1: is a huge
0: show. <laughs> it is.
1: It's a, it's a full show.
0: It is a full show.
1: Unaware if we have time for it all.
0: We don't know that either, okay, but that's great. not our problem. That's a drama's editing that's fun time. That's problem! Yeah. We can't rob him of the joy in his life that is editing our nonsense. Very considerate of you. Thank work. you very much, Bordo. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, Bloodstream listeners, thank you for listening. And remember to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes can always be listened to and shared directly from Bloodstream Media's Facebook page. And as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or if you have questions for Patrick or myself, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com.
0: Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the Bleeding Disorders community, Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, as always, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Before we turn things over to the discussion with Alex and Connie. show. Big show. Followed by let's talk with Josh and Emily. Big show, Amy. Hello, how are you?
1: In the spirit of this being a big show, I feel like this is like a big time of year. This is like my favorite three weeks of the year. Yeah, for sure. We just had Thanksgiving, and it's one of my favorite holidays of all time. I had a pumpkin bagel for breakfast this morning. Congratulations, which is like tis the season. Taylor Swift came out with a new album. Adele came out with a new album. It's a huge, huge season it's for amazing. pop You're music even here. Harry Styles came out with like nail polish kits.
0: Good, I guess.
1: I I don't know. I just saw it on Twitter and I was like, this is great. I thought maybe it was a new album and I wasn't going to be able to handle that. Like Tay and Adele and Harry Styles, but it was just nail polish. You need breathing
0: room in there. It's a little too much if it was all albums. I
1: don't wear nail polish, but I might buy those Harry Styles nail polish kits. This is outing me as like a bit of. Well, everyone's known that. I've talked about Taylor Swift. Like I'm
0: Oh yeah, that's not a secret. I'm kind of a teenage
1: monster when it comes to like my music and pop music. So anyway, Uh keep you informed on the Harry Styles nail kits.
0: Please do. I mean look, I'm learning about Harry Styles nail kits from you. I've learned about Formula One race car driving from you on this podcast. Right. It's a bleeding disorders podcast, (laughs) but you are what give me cultural infusions of what's going on outside of my health head.
1: Right, right. I just you know, I just want all listeners to know what's going inside my head before we like get into like the very important topics that we're gonna get into. which unfortunately is like nail kits for my Harry Styles. No, pff,
0: no unfortunate there whatsoever. We're proud of you. Congratulations on all the great music and nail polish and everything. Else. I don't Pumpkin know. bagels. This
1: whole thing took a turn. I wasn't going to talk about the <laughs> nail kits. This whole thing took a turn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I saw the moment where you decided to, I and did. then I was like, Aha. I did. I
1: was like, that's going to be the final bullet. <laughs> uh.
0: We do have a lot to get to, so let's keep it moving. Connie Montgomery and Alex Abreu, you two awesome community members. It was actually Connie who wanted yes. to have this conversation here on Bloodstream. So let's get to it. Connie and Alex in a discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusivity in bleeding disorders. And then we'll be back with Josh and let's talk. All right, Bloodstream listeners, I'm joined now by two very special guests. The first, our guest interviewer for this conversation. You've heard her a number of times here on Bloodstream, but it has been a few months now. So very happy to be welcoming back Alex Abreu-Borea. Alex, welcome back to Bloodstream.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here with both of you.
0: And congratulations to you too. I think since the last time we had on, Mike, you've had some updates in your life. So I'll say congratulations. You can share anything about that you'd like to or not.
2: (laughs) Some big updates. Yeah, Um, looking back, I got engaged. Which is pretty exciting And I bought a home And I'm now living in Texas. It's a different world out here. I would even argue a different country coming from New York. (laughs) At
0: times it's been. At times it's been. Right.
2: Uh, But I'm (laughs) loving it. As will remind you. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Loving it so far.
0: Good. you got a good jump too on NHF and HFA 2022 being in Texas. Alex was like, I am so committed to my community work. (laughs) I am moving to the state. I'm getting a home in this state slash country. So what commitment, Alex? That's, That's really
2: why I did
0: it. <laughs> yeah, I it. Yeah, I figured it. Yeah, I figured it. All right, let me bring our other guest in here. Connie Montgomery. She is now Connie and I, uh, I think we may have met a couple times along the way, but we most recently and most meaningfully were a part of a panel together for NHF's BDC. I want to read you the bio that I had for Connie for that to give you a little background on her before inviting her into the discussion as well. So Connie lives with factor seven deficiency as well as two rare autoimmune disorders. She is a wife and a mom of two young adults, as well as a grandparent to two fur babies, Sir Germany and Oscar, amongst my favorite names of fur babies I've ever heard. She's extremely active in the community has been for well over a decade. She's a retired occupational therapist, currently the patient and family advisor for the Medical University of South Carolina. And she is on the Rare Bleeding Disorders Leadership Committee at NHF, as well as the Charitable Campaign Chair for the Inspiration Foundation. Connie Montgomery, welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast.
3: Thank you guys for having me today. And I'm excited to converse and talk with you today.
0: I'm very excited to have you on, Uh, having been on that panel with you and knowing what you bring to conversations about important topics in the community. And Alex, knowing what you bring to the table, I'm very excited to see where this conversation goes. So let me kick us off and then Alex, I'll I'll, I'll let you kind of take it from there there. But Connie, I gave the the audience that overview that background on you. But I'm wondering if you could maybe bring us into your experience, your professional and personal experience when it comes to equity, diversity and inclusivity in healthcare management, healthcare, advocacy, healthcare access, and so forth. The floor is yours, Connie,
3: I first want to give you just a little background about me and where I'm from. I was born and reared in the PD and the low country of South Carolina. I'm a member of a fairly large extended family. And professionally, as you stated earlier, I am a retired occupational therapist, but I'm currently serving in the capacity of patient and family advisor for a national organization called PFCC Partners and the Medical University of South Carolina. Also, I serve on the board of directors for Inspiration Foundation, which is a charitable organization, nonprofit, that absolutely supports families and patients who have rare bleeding disorders through education, inspiration, and provides them financial support when documentation has been shown that there's a need. I really enjoy the work that I do with NHF as well. I serve in the leadership capacity with the RARES committee, and I enjoy that because now I'm seeing that rare bleeding disorders is being more acknowledged at the National Hemophilia Foundation and HFA the Hemophilia Federation of America. And I'm absolutely ecstatic about that. So really looking forward to this conversation that we're preparing now.
2: That's fantastic. And Connie, I just want to start by saying, when I see a woman of color being so involved and having such a strong voice in our community is nothing but an honor to me. And you are already served as an inspiration for me and for the future generations in this community. To get us started, I just want you to Just share personal stories or experiences that highlight inequities in our community and the work that has been done in diversity, equity, and inclusion?
3: Well, the work that I've seen done in diversity, equity, and inclusion has taken some time. Like he stated earlier, I've been involved in this community well over a decade, but in that involvement, I've been allowed and fortunate to have the opportunity to travel around the country and speak to chapters, speak at various HTC functions and advocacy days, education days. And so when I'm out there, I get a feel for who's in the community and who's provided services and who feels like there's some more services they could have. And so that has given me an advantage or a vantage point that I feel like a lot of people have not had. But at the same time, the information that I've learned being out there speaking at education days, advocacy days and annual meetings, I've taken it back to NHF and they have put in place different programs to help diversity, equity, and inclusion, such as, of course, most recently, they've hired Dr. Carrie Norris, who is now the DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Expert at NHF, that will train and talk and share information regarding that subject matter. Plus, she's practiced in the area for over 20 years, so she's well-versed there. Also, for myself personally, for years, I would do the RAP sessions, that we had at the end of annual conferences for Black people and African-Americans. And so I got to hear how Black people felt being in the bleeding disorders community and sometimes not always seeing a lot of themselves represented. So I would take that information back. And of course, they started increasing sessions that were for Black people. And I held one of the first ones entitled We Are Family, which stated that, yeah, We are a part of the bleeding disorders community. Though we may look different and have different cultural experiences, we are definitely under the umbrella of the bleeding disorders community at NHF. So I was very happy that they put those things in place. And they've gone even a step farther now. Health Unlocked is a forum that is available online that allows for Black people with bleeding disorders to have a voice. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And Marley Whitten, Brandon Hayes, and I think Kate Namarka has helped started that. And they have let the committee leaders, which is a group of black individuals, decide where we go forward with that. And I'm also a member of that committee. So we're putting some things in place.
2: We are. It's really beautiful to see how much our community has grown when it comes to really acknowledging that people of color exist. And we've been here for since since ever. Unfortunately, a lot of the programs and a lot of the leadership does not reflect the communities of color. So while we've had some some little victories and some wins, there's still a lot of work to get done. Can you talk about what is maybe the biggest unsolved problem facing the bleeding disorders community? right now, specifically for people of color?
3: I would think one of the largest issues that's going to and that is facing the bleeding disorders community and their people of color has got to be having a cohesive set of core competencies or strategies in place that is used across the board for all these chapters, which is, I think, about 53 and about 120 HTCs. These strategies need to be written and put in place, as well as we need to have some type of checks and balances to make certain that the leadership and those governing those entities are following some of those core competencies for diversity equity and inclusion.
2: Could you say a little bit more about those core
3: competencies? Absolutely. This is where we would like to see that We do it in such a strategic way that maybe we set aside time to have maybe the executive directors and the chapter leaders to go to a train the trainer session where they learn about terminology for DEI. What does diversity mean? What does equity mean? What does inclusion mean? What does that look like in your particular setting? Start that process of breaking it down strategically, piece by piece, so that those in leadership and those governing these entities are trained so that they can train their members and their consumers, but first they need to be able to know exactly what this means. Let me give you an example specifically. I was 36 years old when I was diagnosed with factor seven deficiency. Factor seven deficiency is congenital in my family. It's autosomal recessive and both my mother and my father contributed to me having it. However, I remember all through my adolescent years because my mom and I were desperate to get some answers and some help, we're going to tell the healthcare practitioners exactly what was going on with me. Extended nosebleeds, a long menses that last 10 to 12 days, swollen joints and painful joints. All of this information we provided, not just years, but decades to healthcare practitioners, but no one followed up or followed through with it. They just dismissed the symptoms that I gave and that my mother gave. And that was a big leap for us to be able to do that because from the family I'm from, We do not do that. We take our health issues and we take our health care issues. That type of information happens in the family and it stays in the family. You don't go out and share that on the boulevard with the world. Because I was taught by my mother that that could be perceived as a weakness of some sort or people will make unkind judgments about you. So therefore, we didn't share health information or anything that would make anybody think anything unkind about us. So I suffered in silence for years with Factor 7. I mean, I can remember in the lavatory, the bathrooms at school, and using all the tissue that was in there, making certain that, you know, I cleaned up everything. Everything in the stalls was perfect. Like I found them, leaving no trace of blood. I can remember missing days and days out of school. But even with all of that information given to healthcare practitioners, No one listened. And it could have been due to unconscious bias. It could have been due to, you know, so many times I can remember, even after I became an occupational therapist, I can remember folks saying, you know, where where did you look that up from? It was was really humiliating. What makes you think that you, you know, possibly have a bleeding disorder? It was not until I had a vehicular accident, a car accident, that my life was saved. And I went to the emergency room and Dr. Richmond happened to be the doctor there in the emergency room that day, and he had a background that was familiar with bleeding disorders. He and another hematologist came on, did a consult, and several tests and found out that I was factor seven deficient. But he was knowledgeable about bleeding disorders, and he saw that the bleeding wasn't stopping after the wreck. So, I mean, that right there is such an example of why it's important that we get the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece correct.
2: Absolutely, Connie. And, you know, as you were saying your story, I couldn't help but picture myself in your story as well. For many, many years, whenever I would bring up any of the symptoms that I had or my sister had, it was always viewed as, okay, well, it could be an allergy. It could be this, it could be that. It was never taken seriously. And my mom would sit there with our doctor and say, Is it normal? A little girl playing soccer and she gets hit by a ball and she can't stop bleeding? Is that normal? Well, it could be. We never got answers. I don't have another word, but I just say it really sucks that people of color are still in that today. We advocate for ourselves, we advocate for ourselves. I am telling you, I sometimes I feel like I am my own doctor. Because I go to my doctor with what I think I have. Because if I don't Nothing will get resolved. And, you know, we we talk about diversity. We talk about equity. We talk about inclusion. As I say, it has become like the sexy thing. People want to do this work, but people don't really know what it feels. People don't know what it's like to be in those shoes, to be in that doctor's office and not be taken seriously. And in your case, be in a car accident. And that's when they're like, okay, let's take it seriously now because something might be off. It's just... I I feel for you. And at the same time, I've I've also been in your shoes and it's really not a great place to be.
3: But you know what, Alex? It's so good that we are doing this podcast today. It's so good that we are sharing our stories so someone else can advocate for his or herself. And without our stories going forward, no matter how horrific they are, a change won't happen. So we're going to have to be on the front lines in the battlefield sharing our stories. My daughter, Connor J. Jocelyn Graham, and I have come up with a program called hear with your eyes, see with your heart, compassionate healthcare, And what I do is I use this program to train people around the country, especially healthcare practitioners, to really, really tune in and use not just their medical expertise, but even all five of their senses to really get to know their patients and their families and the caregivers. All of this is necessary. I mean, it's just the first steps of DEI work. It's the first steps of health care. I mean, the term care is in health care. One has to care.
0: Connie, I want to ask you a question. There was a reference to not necessarily seeing oneself depicted in places. And I want to touch on the role that media and imagery has to play in some of this. What what are some of the ways that you believe media is contributing to what we'll just kind of broadly refer to as the problem. And as you may anticipate, my follow up will be how might it be used to be more of the solution. But let's do the first part first. How is media contributing to problems as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusivity, access? What are your thoughts?
3: People in media and media relations have a lot of power. The stories that they share, I mean, has a lot of power. They can share stories about individuals from various backgrounds, different belief systems. They can share stories about a number of things that other people cannot because they have access to media. And having access to media removes a lot of barriers. People don't have to travel places now. Media is global, right? People all over the place hear this particular podcast and others. They don't have to be in that geographical location. I'm in South Carolina, Alex is in Texas, and I think you're in California. So media can bridge a lot of gaps, but media has to get it right. Media has to use evidence-based research. Yes? We, We have to know that the information that we're sharing is true, reliable, valid information that science supports, <laughs> okay? Also, we have to use well-vetted and respected and trusted individuals to give those messages and to share that information. So media, very important in getting the message right.
0: Are there any examples of media getting the message right that have been particularly eye-popping for you or are models that we may consider in other areas? Curious of any any media examples that you might highlight as that's that's using media for what its full potential could be.
3: A fine example of that is, you know, COVID-19 had a lot of horrific points, to. Of course, it, I mean, it brought about a pandemic. People couldn't be with their family members. Generations were separated. Grandparents couldn't be with uh, grandkids. And so much came about. But also COVID-19, the pandemic forced us into a place to recognize a lot of things. Number one, healthcare disparities and media. Media played a major role in bringing that to the surface and spotlighting it. Whether it was on the nightly news or whether it was podcasts like this one, people were talking about the visible healthcare disparities in Latino communities, in Black communities, in marginalized and underrepresented communities. So media is paramount in getting some messages forward. Media is also paramount in telemedicine, telemedicine, of course, wouldn't be nowhere as far as it is now without us having to be forced to utilize it due to the pandemic and people in the digital world and media relations knowing how to make these things happen. So media has some absolutely outstanding points for getting messages out there and doing a good job.
0: Well, Alex, it looks like we got to make sure to take our responsibilities seriously over here on the media side of things, huh?
2: (laughs) We have to. It's our duty. Connie, I want to get back and talk a little bit more about trust. Trust is huge, especially, you know, I I come from the Latino community. If there's no trust, there's nothing. There's no trust. Don't even talk to me. That's how it is. And I think something that people who are not from a diverse background don't understand is that we are diverse. I mean, it's in the word diversity, but there's a lot that goes into that. We are diverse. Black people, they don't all just relate to one another. They don't all just have the same culture. Latinos, we all don't even speak the same. We are very, very diverse. Our approaches are diverse. So you can't look at me and say, oh, she represents the entire Latino community because that's just wrong. I can't look at you, Connie, and say you represent all Black, all African Americans, because that's just wrong. There's just so much diverse in our cultures and who we are. With that being said, what's your opinion on how much trust patients of color within our community have for the national organization groups like NHF, HFA, for industry, for the HTCs, and all of the players that play a role within our health in the bleeding disorders community?
3: I think, first of all, trust cannot be assumed. It has to be earned. There's a lot of history, mistrust and distrust in the African-American or Black community regarding health care for good reason. I mean, absolute good reason. Not just the Henrietta Lack story where the HeLa cells were stole from her and have been used in science throughout, even today, are sitting in laboratory freezers being tested upon. Not just the Tuskegee Airmen study, where, I mean, from 1932 to the early 70s, Black men were tested and given syphilis, unbeknownst to them, that affected generations. Not just James Marion Sims, Dr. James Marion Sims, the modern-day father of the speculum in gynecological services, designing and building the speculum, using enslaved black women without anesthesia to test these products on. You can see from just those three or four stories I just shared, there's so much distrust and mistrust for good reason. And then my own personal story of having such a delayed diagnosis. I mean, decades went by, tried to share discreetly what was going on. We were dismissed. There is a level of deep listening that must take place. Black people, for us to trust, our chapters, our national organizations, our HTCs, and just our healthcare practitioners, we need to know that we're being taken serious and you're listening to the information we're sharing. Our voices have to be heard and we must be able to be a part of all the decision-making processes that affect our healthcare and that of our families and loved ones.
2: Connie, I I really like what you said, especially when talking about listening. I think a lot of people do a lot of hearing, but listening is so different, especially when we're talking about communities of color. And something that has been floating around, and I think we need to be really explicit about, is that structural racism, oppression, and bias are really at the root of all of the inequalities that we experience as people of color in this country. A lot of people say that the system is broken, but I really believe that the system was built this way, to not serve people of color, to oppress us. Because something that white communities started to, to really understand is that communities of color, we have power. Even if in, in narratives and conversations, we are viewed as powerless, we have so much power, and that is scary. To white normative culture. So, I, I really want us to talk about structural racism and what are some of the activities that are aimed at addressing structural racism and bias that you're aware of and is taking place within our bleeding disorders
3: community? Very good question, with a lot of meat to it. And the reason I say that is because I think we have to look back and, and take a historical perspective to really get a beginning of an understanding of structural racism. Structural racism in the United States of America started during the colonial years. And this country, colonial, was built for Caucasians, white people. So the service of the forced slaves that came over here, the people in my ancestry, blacks and African-Americans, we were in servitude along with so many other peoples of color during different jobs and labors. And those particular jobs that we were provided didn't allow for us to go and have the opportunity to get the formal education that some of our counterparts had and to live in the nicer parts and places in town that some of our counterparts were able to reside in. And all of these things, of course, affected black communities. But because of the way some of our communities Black, Latino, and other underrepresented and marginalized communities existed, you know, we built cohesiveness in what we had in family, in community, in our houses of faith, in our churches. We built community with what we had. We adapted and overcame the skills that we innately were blessed with. So, with structural racism, government, housing, formal education, of course, the loan systems, and all of these things that were established made it difficult for people of color to excel. But we reached deep in our own homes, communities, and families, and tried to build each other up and did. My mother was a custodian, a maid. However, she reared four educated girls. I'm a retired occupational therapist. I have another sibling who's a social worker and another one who's an educator and counselor and daycare worker. So all of these jobs we were able to get wouldn't be possible without the labor of my mother and without her knowing who she was and then instilling us that we have that possibility to achieve and attain our dreams. That's how we made it, but yes. Overall, in this country, in the United States of America, the system was set. We were placed in positions that were less than our counterparts, but we adapted and overcame and are overcoming. We have to continue to share with our legacies what has transpired so history does not repeat itself. And we have to continue to partner with our counterparts and educate them on our lived experiences because a lot of times they just do not know. You know, our Caucasian counterparts do not know what it's like unless they are related or have a person of color in their family somehow. So that's what I want to say about that. What the bleeding disorders community is doing in terms of aims to help remedy some of this. I would say some of the programming that you are seeing specifically for diversity, equity, and inclusion... Is addressing some of that. The hiring of experts like Dr. Carrie Norris, who's had 20 years working in D&I around the country, who now works for the National Hemophilia Foundation. She is going to bring a wealth of information to help train, teach, and partner with others to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how important it is in healthcare management. Because, see, we have to understand that the social determinants that are directly, directly impacted by structural racism affect our ability to receive proper and good health care. Also, we have to understand that our counterparts, their unconscious biases affect the type of health care they deliver to us. So all of these things have to be taken into consideration. And having someone like Dr. Carrie Norris on board to help educate and train us, our over 50 chapters, our 130 plus HTCs is only a good thing. Connie,
2: thank you so much for all of the knowledge you've been sharing with us today. Last question for you. What is the number one message you want to leave listeners and our community with?
3: No. No. K N O W. Know that your diagnosis, bleeding disorder or a rare chronic condition does not determine your possibilities in this life. You have to choose for yourself to do the best that you can for yourself and for others, regardless of whatever challenges you may face. In this life, there will be ups and there will be downs. You just have to forge forward.
0: Well, Connie Montgomery, you are a phenomenal member of this community. I'm proud to know you. I'm very happy to have had you on. Alex and I were chatting a little off mic about just how much this conversation has meant. So let's make a commitment to continue it because it's not a one and done topic. So let's make a commitment to continue it into next year. And anytime that you have something that you'd like to share or like us to announce on Bloodstream about work you're doing, Connie, please reach out to Alex or me, let us know. We'd be happy to share that out.
3: Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity just to share a little bit with your audience today. And I just think the bleeding disorders community is one of the most resilient communities there is. We can teach the world a whole lot about living even with challenges and doing the best you can.
2: Mic drop.
0: Connie. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Connie, thank you. Alex, you're a rock star, social worker, advocate, regular contributor to the podcast. Thank you. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you both for doing this today.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Connie. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Connie. Thank you, Alex, for that discussion—an important one, an yes. ongoing one—and we have actually been talking about how can that panel form of discussing this important topic, how, how can we bring this kind of a bloodstream-led conversation elsewhere into the community? So, Connie, Alex, and I are having some chats about that very thing. So, <gasps> Stay tuned. Hopefully, there'll be more on that topic from Bloodstream in the new year that we can share with you all here. Stay tuned. But with that, time to move on to da 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 Let's talk. Oh, let's talk, Amy. Let's talk.
1: Let's talk. Let's talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Santa Fe Genzyme and aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorder community. For people living with or caring for someone with a bleeding disorder, the impact on mental health is largely invisible and not often discussed. Let's talk shares tips on how to care for your own or someone you love's mental health and strives to eliminate the stigma associated with this discussion within the bleeding disorders community. Visit letstalkmh.com to learn more. Again, that is talkmh.com. And now let's go over to Josh for Let's Talk.
4: I've always been a little bit different, and I've never known why. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. My difference wasn't something you could see or point at or witness in any way. I don't have a physical disability. I don't have a medical disorder. Nope, nothing like that. And my difference wasn't picked up on by anyone throughout school or work or by my parents or friends. No, it was a discovery actually that my wife made about two months ago while we were stuck in traffic. How it came up, I can't remember. In fact, memory is involved as a part of this. I can't remember how it came up. I can't remember when it started. And the more I try to investigate it, the more alarmed I am that I may have had this my entire life and am only now discovering it just days before my 36th birthday. It's a personal difference, but a big one. In fact, I'm roughly in the 2% of all people on Earth that have this difference. And for the past two months, I've been experiencing various levels of existential crisis, deep curiosity, and horror at the fact that I'm different and that no one, especially myself, ever knew. If you're listening to this, there is a 98% chance that I'm different from you. What I have is called aphantasia. Let's talk.
5: So I wasn't diagnosed with my bleeding disorder until I was 12. I bruised a ton, would have weird joint problems. I have memories of like sitting and my mom's just like trying to pack my sinuses basically like the best that she can because they just, it would not stop bleeding. My pediatrician was like, oh, it's just allergies. Like it's, you know, dry in Colorado, use a humidifier. So of course we did. Um, and it didn't really make a difference.
4: This is Kira from our Let's Talk Mental Health documentary.
5: My first cycle wasn't bad. It was like very minor. But the second cycle was horrendous. And so I would go to school and basically like make a diaper for myself. So I would take one pair of underwear and line it with pads and then put another pair of underwear lined with pads over it. And I would bleed through that in like an hour. There's one memory I have where I started at a brand new school. And my second day, I was the new girl, and I stood up to go throw trash away at lunch. And when I came back, there was just blood everywhere, all over the bench. And it was like the room went silent. The whole entire cafeteria went silent. And everyone was like, oh my God, is that your period? And I was just mortified. I was like, this is going to be my reputation. And it was until I graduated and went to high school. And then kids that I went to high school with, of course, still knew about that or whatever. Um, So I carried that reputation basically until I graduated
4: high school. Growing up with a bleeding disorder, especially as a woman, can be terribly frustrating. I speak not from personal experience, but from having heard stories like Kira's quite a lot in my time working with Believe. There was an event for women with bleeding disorders a few years ago in Brighton, England, where we heard stories of confusion and neglect by families and doctors, hysterectomies at young ages used as a cure for endless periods, and I met some women there who weren't diagnosed with bleeding disorders until they were in their 40s, despite generations of women before them being held down by their intense monthly cycles. Heavy periods run in the family— that's just who we are. This is outrageous. It's the end of 2021, how could we let this happen? Well, consider that a lot of this delay and diagnosis is due to how we as a dominating white male society treat women. Women are still to this day treated as second-class citizens, despite making up half the population and being able to literally grow human life inside of them. Women still struggle for equal salaries, equal respect, equal safety against assault and violence, and equal medical attention. And this is all before you bring race into the equation, or gender identity, or venture outside the United States where access to care can be far more challenging. I guess the reason I'm drawing attention to this is because as I become aware of my own difference for the first time, and as I struggle to understand the implications it had on my first 36 years of life on this earth, I'm aware of who I am and the privileges that I have because of my race and gender. I'm a straight white male working in a creative field with a good steady job, and by most comparisons, I have a pretty healthy body. At the same time, I don't want to discount my experience or avoid talking about it because I have a unique opportunity, as I explore my past, to gain a deeper understanding and empathy for what it feels like to grow up different. Alright, I've buried the lead enough already. Here's the story. I was riding in the car, my wife Courtney was driving, and I forget how we got to this topic, but suddenly she was saying, When I say picture a green apple, what do you see? What do you mean, what do I see? Like, what do you see in your mind? Uh, I don't understand. Well, like right now, I can see a green apple right in front of me. That sounds extremely dangerous. Should I be driving? This was how the conversation started. And where it ended up that day was me assuming Courtney was some sort of psychic X-Men level mutant with special abilities unlike the majority of the rest of the world who by default must be like me. Well, of course, being the knowledge seeker that she is, Courtney started doing some research and, as we explored the topic, found the term aphantasia the inability to voluntarily create a mental picture in your mind. I bet you have a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions too. I still do. Here's some rapid fire answers to bring you up to where I am. Aphantasia was first described in 1880, but wasn't named or studied until 2015 aphantasia appears to be a spectrum i fall somewhere on the low end of the spectrum in that i can sometimes get a flash of an image like a still photograph but it's still completely out of my control i have vivid sometimes hyper realistic dreams that are by nature heavily visual when i read books i don't see anything in my mind there are no images whatsoever but sometimes i can hear the characters or sounds of the environment that they're in My memory is not visual. I have the words to describe parts of my past, but I have no visual memory. I can't see my old toys. I can't see my grandparents' faces. I can't even pull up an image of my wife's face after closing my eyes right in front of her. When I close my eyes and I listen to music or a story, I see the red inside of my eyelids. No matter how hard I try to exercise my mind, that's all that I see. And sometimes static. Instead, I feel the story emotionally, I feel the experiences of the characters, and occasionally, in the most rare of circumstances, I experience a flash, like a photograph, like a rip in the space-time continuum, like a lightning bolt, and I get an image. But that is so rare, in fact, For the first three books of Isaac Asimov's The Foundation, the only image I have in my mind is of a picket fence and a white house. And for reference, after the first chapter, the entire story takes place in outer space and on different planets 10,000 years in the future. Learning about this difference that I have, and how rare it is, has gotten in the way of my normal life. It occupies a huge space in my mind. When I read, I can't help but question why I can't visualize. I get lost in that thought and forget to keep reading. In meetings, when someone is explaining something, I find myself wondering what everyone else must be seeing. I get distracted and I lose focus. And during downtime, when I'm alone and it's quiet, I dive into my past and I think about things like Big Bird saying, use your imagination, and wondering what that meant. I think about school assemblies where they tell you to close your eyes and go on a journey, I think about acting classes I took and how everyone there must have been so much more connected to what was happening in the plays and I was just going through the motions pretending as best I could, but never really getting it like everyone else did. I've always had a hard time with books. I gravitate heavily towards movies and TV. I've always had a fascination with photography. My parents used to make fun of me because I would take hundreds and hundreds of photos, filling up my first camera phones and having to learn how to transfer my images to my computer, hard drives of photos, all grabbing that visual memory for me because I couldn't do it myself. How did nobody catch this? I look back and I see that every time I felt different, Like I didn't understand, like I didn't fit in. There was a reason. And while I'm kind of spiraling over this, I'm also relieved to have some sort of answer. A diagnosis of sorts. Something to point at and say, aha, that's why. It's not my fault I didn't like books as much as my dad. It's not my fault I couldn't concentrate in lectures. It's not my fault I didn't want to play as much or that my acting teacher in New York would scream at me, come on, see it, you have to really see it. It's not my fault that I'm different. In fact, once I finish my exploring for the moment and stop looking at who I was and take a hard look at who I am, it's actually pretty cool. Aphantasia is a part of who I am. And I managed to make it this far using the skills I do have, using my feelings as my driving force to be creative, to work in a creative field, and to create my own way of visualizing using different tools. I grew up different from those around me, and I'm just starting to figure out why. And while it may be alarming, it's also really comforting now that I know. And it's kind of cool. I have a lot of work to do, and I'm grateful for my therapist to help me along the way. And I'm certainly no expert on these things, but Amy talked to Emily again, who is a clinical psychologist, and here's what she had to say about the matter.
1: We're here with Emily Wheat, clinical psychologist at the University of Colorado, HTC. And Emily, if you have experienced being different growing up, what emotional stress can that cause later in life?
5: You know, there's some research to show that the experiences that we have early on can um, predict and even impact the way that we um, experience things later in life. So you know, perhaps you might be more vulnerable um, to feeling like you don't belong in other aspects. Um, But there's also research that shows that experiencing difficult events can lead to growth um, and can make a person more resilient. So, you know, I think it really depends on the supports that um, an individual has in place, um, the supports that they seek out for themselves and really their ability to kind of grow and learn from that experience. So, I think when that happens, um, it could, in fact, be um, an opportunity instead of an impediment.
4: Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Amy and Patrick, for giving me the space to come on here and talk. I hope you found it helpful and encouraging. Talking can be so healing. If you want access to some incredible mental health resources, you want to explore the film Let's Talk Mental Health on your own, or you just want to dig deeper yourself, please go check out letstalkmh.com and click resources. And I'll see you on the next episode. All oh, right, and now joining
0: Amy and I here in studio, sort of. He's in the next studio over, but he's also on a microphone. I don't know,
1: he's like on a video studio. In our studio.
0: There's a lot of studio to this recording. Joshua Sterling Bragg. Hey, Josh, how are you, man? Hi, I'm in a studio. <laughs> <laughs> so, Studio Josh, aphantasia, a word I had never heard before the Let's Talk segment this week that I think you hadn't heard before just a couple of weeks ago yourself.
4: Where is that sitting with you right now, right in this moment? How, how is your relationship to aphantasia today i'm still really distracted by it i find myself like you know taking a shower and being like come on green apple where's the green apple it's weird because i'm trying to force it now because i'm like "It, it can't be this can't be true you know, because there's, there's part of me that thinks it might be linked to like past trauma and that I like close that off. But then the more I go down the rabbit hole of what my childhood was like, the more I'm like, no, I think it just always was like this.
1: I think it's interesting, I don't know, in, in just knowing you personally and how incredibly creative you are outwardly. I, I just I just think it's a fascinating thing that maybe it like fuels some of your creativity, your visual creativity. You're one of the most creative thinkers I've ever been around. And I just I wonder if it's I don't know, it just fuels that in some way. Don't mess with it. Don't yeah, mess with yeah, formulas. yeah.
4: I know. I think that's what makes it so confusing for me, too, is that mm-hmm. I, I know that I'm a writer and I create things and I do, you know, Patrick and I just worked on this edit together that is like more creative than I think anything we've done in the past together. But I sit there watching it going like, how? How did this happen?
0: Mm. (laughs) It's so interesting. You know, something that really struck me about what you were sharing was how just literally days ahead of your 36th birthday, you're realizing this. And you know Kira talks about this in the segment and and, and going to school and the reputation she got. And it's one thing when you are a child, a teenager, and you're having an experience that you feel different, you feel other than, but it's a whole nother component to it when you don't know what that different is, when you don't know why you feel other than, and it isn't until you're almost a 36-year-old adult that you're like, oh, and it suddenly gives this whole different context and filter through which to look at all of these past experiences. So has that happened for you at all? Are you unearthing anything from childhood or your younger years that now make a little more sense that you've had this understanding about yourself?
4: Yeah, definitely. And it's new discoveries every day. I remember, and I've told people before about this moment where i remember i was setting up gi joe's in the attic and all of a sudden i was like i don't want to play with gi joe's anymore i was like 13 years old and i was just done it was like a light switch went off i was done playing for the rest of my life and i got into video games and, and much more visual stuff and i've always been fascinated by cameras even from a really young age i had a point and shoot camera maybe like eight or nine years old maybe started taking photographs and getting them developed and trying to do better and that was something that i've kept up up until today i mean i've probably taken a million photographs i i don't even know how to calculate it because i look at just my folder from 2019 before the world shut down and there's like 45 folders in there of like days that i went out and and took photos like purposefully and then that's not even including what's on my phone which I use every single day. I've talked to people too before about being afraid to lose my mind, like to lose my memories at some point. And that photography Mm -hmm. is how I connect to those memories because I can't pull anything up. I just know the words to describe it. And I've, I've said that before too in my past and it wasn't triggering to anybody. Like no one was like, that's different. They just were like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: There's something actually that Emily talks about in the segment, Amy, with you, the idea of feeling different growing up other than how it can lead to growth. She she mentions that and how it can make a person more resilient, the ability to grow and learn from that experience, I think is the the wording she uses. But it's funny, like as she said that, and I'm really sensitive to this idea of resiliency as a result of things one should not necessarily have to go through these days. I was thinking, yeah, but that only happens if that experience can be processed, understood, defined, worked through. And that's a heavy burden for a child. So, yes, these things that like lead us to growing up feeling different can lead to being resilient. But I just feel like that's... I don't know. I, I understand why she mentions that and it's not unfair, but it's like, let's break that down further. We're asking a 7, 8, 12 year old child to be able to have the faculties and the experts support to help them process in that way. That's a little crazy to me. Let's call, let's call it what it is. When you are feeling different growing up, it stinks. It's not comfortable. It stinks. Am I wrong?
4: No, it, it's it's it stinks. <laughs> I mean, we have we have a family friend who their 7-year-old, he feels emotions very heavily and is going through some depression as like a 7-year-old and they're trying to figure out how to navigate that. And I know I know him very well. I see the turmoil inside of him and he doesn't have the the language to describe exactly what's going on. He doesn't have the life knowledge, you know, the experience to Navigate it. He's just like confused and kind of upset by it because he's different. It's looking at that kid and thinking about myself at that age that makes me realize, like, uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're really right. It's a lot to ask to to be able to process that and deal with it, and we really need our parents and and our friends and and, and like to destigmatize this stuff so that it becomes something we talk about at a younger age.
0: And I'll say too, for me, you know, hemophilia. It's not like aphantasia where you were feeling different in ways that you couldn't define or put your finger on that now have, you know, oh, light bulb moment. I've known I've had hemophilia. It wasn't invisible. But what feels very relatable to what you're sharing, Josh, is that it's only now in adult life. The many ways in which hemophilia has impacted me is something that I am connected to how I thought about myself, how I continue to think about myself, my sense of self, my sense of safety, my sense of possibility, my craving for imagination. Like you, I I don't think I have aphantasia, but I don't have a strong visual memory or visual ability. But I think that actually in part drives my desire to create and be imaginative. The escapism, my interest in escapism, striving for a future that's better than the present. Amy and I were just talking about that a little bit off mic. Like hemophilia intersects with all of that. And I've found that like, every couple few weeks as I'm processing more of my life or something we're working on is having me think personally about something from childhood. It's like a constant process of, I've heard this said before, but like a parenting my own inner child and helping myself understand like, oh, that moment in time, you didn't have the tools to think about it like this. Now you do and you can. That's a painful process sometimes. It's an emotional process. It's a vulnerable process. So you led me to think about hemophilia in some different ways. I guess that's the point I'm trying to share. And and to me, underscores how whatever the thing is that makes us feel different, especially as a kid, it's the experience of feeling different as a kid that is universal. And I appreciate how much you were letting us in on that in this segment.
4: Yeah, the feelings are universal, because it could relate to your weight, it could relate to being born with one arm that looks different than the other, or having poor vision, or, you know, difficulty hearing, it could be literally anything that makes you feel different. And the reality that I'm finding out through therapy, too, is that my, my therapist says this all the time that she is blessed with the opportunity to hear everyone's problems. And so she picks up on these universal themes that no one's talking to each other about, but we all... All felt different growing up because we're unique mm. and because we are special and have our differences like that's part of being a human being and, and being an animal and like being made up of dna and the way that we procreate like that, that's all variables and no one's gonna be the same as anybody else no one's gonna think the same as anyone else no one's ever gonna have the experience as anyone else like you'll never know what natalie's life experience is You can get close by spending your life with her, but you'll never know what it feels like to be her or what the color green looks like to her, you know? And so Mm -hmm. we all have this space to feel different and we shouldn't feel so lousy about it. But we do. We're, in a sense, all kind of alone in it.
0: And striving to connect. And I think that's part of it is I feel at times... My otherness prevents me from being able to connect or feel connected to the group. And yet, as human beings, we want to be around other people. We're social creatures. We we work together. We move in packs. So, oh, there's so much there. Amy, there's a lot there, but is there any final word from you that you'd like to share a final question or thought for Josh?
1: I just I think this was a wonderful topic and commend you, Josh, for putting words to it. And I know it's, you know, a bit of a deep dive, but I also think putting words to things, being aware of things like this is the first step towards that connecting to not have it be a barrier to connection, but to really, you know, utilize that to relate to others and engage with others. So I think it's great.
0: Thank you, Josh.
4: Yeah, I, I just want to end with I was scrolling through TikTok early this morning and I came across Will Smith, who does a lot of like public speaking and empowering people and
0: acting. He does acting, too.
4: <laughs> he does <laughs> acting, True. too, sometimes with himself. But the, the thing that it was him in a room of people and his message in that video was there's nothing in life more important than unconditional love so love each other and base everything else around that so i'm stealing that and that's my final word love yourself love each other
0: well, thank you for that powerful final word. Thank you to Santa Fe Genzyme for making Let's Talk possible. Let's talk to learn more about the Let's Talk film and resources that are available. And if you like these segments driven by Josh with contributions from Emily Wheat and other clinical professionals, go to the Bloodstream Podcast webpage at bloodstreammedia.com. You'll see the banner where we have a page devoted just to these segments. They're all video segments as well. So it's personal, they're beautiful. And that's at bloodstreammedia.com, the Bloodstream Podcast webpage. Josh, thank you, sir. And we'll be back again next month to hear the final let's talk of 2020 from you 2021 what year oh god (laughs) (laughs) thanks buddy well thanks again to connie alex josh emily and kira For contributing to this episode. It was a packed episode, but we did it, Amy. We did it. We did it. it. There were some said we couldn't. I don't know who they were, but they probably existed. We We did did it it. anyway. Amy, what can listeners look forward to on the next episode of the Bloodstream podcast? What's coming next?
1: Well, it's going to be December, full-blown December. (laughs)
0: Full-blown December. Yeah, no more preview (laughs) December. Full-blown.
1: Full-blown. End of the year, last (laughs) month of the year. So we're going to do what we always do on Bloodstream Media. We are going to have a state of the state. Let's figure out what happened in this year. Where have we been? Maybe we'll hear from some global and national leaders.
0: Ooh, maybe. They haven't
1: confirmed yet. Not yet,
0: but we think they will. We just don't want to say until (laughs) they do. They're just
1: busy and it's December. Exactly.
0: But that's what we're going to do.
1: Yeah, no, it'll be great.
0: But with all of that being said, this, your post-Thanksgiving, Black Friday, late November. Yes. Amy's having a pumpkin bagel episode. Yes. That is all for this episode. (laughs) Uh, A reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with family, friends, and colleagues. And join us again next month as Amy and I seek to close out 2021 with two excellent show-stopping episodes, which Amy's entirely responsible for writing, producing, and making happen. Did you know that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't aware of that. Hey, do you have a bleeding disorder topic or a health topic that you'd like to hear us discuss a little bit more? Maybe there's an expert or a guest that you're just dying to hear from. Do you want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcasts or Believe Limited films? Well, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on Bloodstream Media on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can follow myself or Patrick James Lynch on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And I'm going to say shout out to all the committed LinkedIn users out there. You did
0: it! Oh, see, that wasn't that hard. (laughs) (laughs) This was an evolution you did not want to have to make. I
1: know, this is a bummer.
0: I am your host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: Hey, and I'm that other host, Amy Board.
0: And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Happy holidays and bye, everybody. Bye-bye.